0: Magnus Podcast, episode 20, Education and America with Dr. Andrew Seeley. Welcome back. We are going to bring you this little uh, bonus episode under the three beers with John Johnson format for your 4th of July, as we are discussing the history of liberal education in America, and then the compatibility with the American experiment and authentic human freedom. We do cover a lot of ground with Dr. Seeley who is a tutor at Thomas Aquinas College. He's also one of the founders for the, of the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education and a board member for the Albertus Magnus Institute, as well as a senior fellow for the Albertus Magnus Institute. Uh, you'll actually hear later in this discussion the very moment, which we taped a few months ago uh, back at Garmin's pubs, now been permanently shut down due to coronavirus. May, may it rest in peace. But there is a, there's a moment in this discussion when we ask Dr. Seeley if he will join the Magnus mission, and you'll see, well, you'll hear his answer. It was a good one. So uh, don't, don't miss any of this. It's, it's a long one, and it's worth every second, because Dr. Seeley is a wise man. Anyway, I know you're just here for the theme music, so Enjoy.
1: When I started uh, my work with the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education, the first thing I wanted to do, um, which basically I was doing because I wanted to share the great things that, that, that we do at Thomas Aquinas College with other institute, educational institutions in the church. And, but the first thing I did was I tried to educate myself on the history of education, and so to see how what we were doing at Thomas Aquinas College fit into the traditions of education. Do I need to be close? No, you're good. Okay. And um, so I read uh, a couple of things. One is a book called Orators and Philosophers, which was recommended by Dominic Aquila, who's now the VPAA at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. And I read Christopher Dawson's Crisis of Western Education. Hmm. And I strongly recommend that book for somebody interested in the the history of education. And what both of them witness to was that uh, there was a there there are two different emphases in liberal education one was a rhetorical tradition that is um, where education was the education of the free man was aimed at producing the political leader who was grounded in the best of his own traditions and Was able to persuasively and wisely help direct his society. The other was a philosophical tradition which aimed to produce somebody who transcended any particular society and uh, became a philosopher who was able to look at his own society and kind of judge it on higher terms and whose um, fulfillment in life was much more on the intellectual side than on the political side. So, um, and you, it, you find at different time periods. Uh, different; uh, those two things are those two ways of seeing liberal education. Were one of them was preferred. Going back how far? Going back to the Greeks. So the Greeks, um, the Greeks started it, and at the time. Uh, of uh, a lot of where the, a lot of the educational traditions arose. Thank you. Um, there were, there was actually, there was Socrates, of course, and Plato, and the ph- philosoph- philosophers, but there was also Isocrates and Democritus, and those were um, those were teachers of rhetoric, of political rhetoric. Okay. And um, so there was a, a disagreement about what was most important for the seriously educated person. Oh, uh, interesting. And, and um, in And then, three, just, sorry. did you restate
0: yeah. the the disagreement there would be
1: between civic yeah.
0: virtue and
1: kind of like that, yeah. Or, no, no, or, sorry. Civic virtue and rhetoric would be kind of together, so okay. there's a disagreement about whether the seriously educated person should have for uh, should be equipped to be a political leader, or should he be equipped to be a philosopher? Should he find his fulfillment in leading his society yeah. to the best to be the best it could be, or should he find his his fulfillment in the intellectual life, the academic life, the the life that's that's really um, participating in eternity more directly? Yep. Yeah. And um, there was a contention about that in Greece. Rome definitely favored the um, the civic virtue, rhetorical leader with people like Cicero and Quintilian, yep. and, um, and Augustine came out of that. That was the, that was a tradition he was educated in. Um, but then, the, in the High Middle Ages, the scholastic education was a, a uh, theological, philosophically. Oriented education, so you're being prepared for that. Right. In the Renaissance, it flipped back to the more civic, uh, civic-oriented rhetorical emphasis. That anyway, happens, so it kind of goes ex- back and ex-
0: explicitly forth. Explicitly, with I mean, Machiavelli is up to that question, right? Do we want virtue or do we want political prowess? And he he sides with you know what's easily
1: attainable. Uh, yeah. Though I don't. Uh, both both of the traditions I'm talking about would see virtue as the goal. It's just whether the virtue are the, uh, is the virtue the the politically oriented practical leadership virtues, or is it the virtues of thought, the virtues of thought abstracted from considerations of leading. So society. So you wouldn't see
0: the, the the project of modernity as being either one The of abandonment. It, uh, would be, it would be a would be rejection. Of both totally different. Of yeah. It'd be a rejection of both. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh.
1: Um, and um, yeah. So the. So the reason I was b- thought I was bringing all that up <laughs> is because the, there are differences among the Catholic colleges today, and that focus on that really uh, embrace liberal education. So they want to be forming students to be the best men possible, men and women possible, and to lead the most in, uh, rich, enriched life or fulfilling life. But some of them say. Well, that that life is an, a life of the intellect. Mm-hmm. It's a life of the mind. It's
0: contemplative life. A
1: contemplative life, uh, a scholastically contemplative life, and others tend to think more. It's it's a it's a it's a life of political virtue, civic virtue, or it's a life, a poetic, more of a poetic life, um, a Can life of the imagination. Names?
0: I'm getting colleges that are coming to mind for each one. Okay. Well,
1: Thomas Aquinas College is a is a is a, a scholastic. Oriented curriculum, yes. So Wyoming probably more.
0: Poetic. Wyoming,
1: uh, Wyoming is more oriented towards uh, the poetic, the civic, um, and not that they. But Wyoming tries to be a, tries to blend both traditions.
0: Yeah. Do um, you think that's uh, a consequence of the John Senior yes. MacArthur? Yes. Divergence at some point. I mean, yes. Like they're buddies, right? Yes. But they ultimately end up doing something. Yes. a little bit distinct yeah
1: and I, I don't I'm, yeah. yes and if I'm getting any of this wrong, people from Wyoming can correct me right yeah <laughs> but um, this is my impression uh, yeah so your uh, audience would be familiar with John senior and they are that now program <laughs> give us give us a little back background okay so um, yes yeah, so this is really cool you know the back in the '60s yeah. as Catholic higher education was falling apart yep um, there were people for whom it was incredibly distressing, and they wanted to do. They were impelled by the spirit to do something uh, radically different, right? Yeah. Um, and, and a number of those people gathered together in Wyoming in the summers um, for the Institute for Catholic Thought. Yeah. Do, you, do you know about that? Right, Lar- rem- Laramie, right? Yeah, I can't remember the name. Um, but among those were Ron MacArthur, who ended up being one of the founders of Thomas Aquinas College, John Senior, who helped to found the integrated humanities program at the University of Kansas. May, it rest, I, in let, may, may it rest, rest in, in peace. May rest in peace. Yes. And I think that um, I think also the founder of Christendom may have been oh, I didn't one know of that. The, one of those. Um, at any rate, they were. They would come together and. and Enjoy talking with one another about the Catholic intellectual tradition, but then also they started to make plans for what kind of what would they what were they going to do about it, right? Um, so um, Ron MacArthur and John Senior both had different ideas. Ron MacArthur wanted to found a Catholic. Program. He was he was a professor at the uh, integrated pro- pro- um, sorry, integrated humanities program at St. Mary's College in Cal- Northern California. Yep. So that was a program that was inspired by and learned from the St. John's College Great Books, uh, Mortimer Adler. That's right. Program. Robert uh, Hutchins. And made Catholic, right? the uh, Sorry. The St. Mary's program sort of christened. Yeah, they were. Uh, it was. It was definitely Catholic. Um, but trying to take advantage of, trying to baptize what was done at St. John's College. Yep. Ron MacArthur and some of his colleagues there felt that they were constrained by the fact that this was a program within a larger college which didn't share the goals of the, the, the goals of liberal education.
0: Which is evident today. I mean, yeah. at St. Mary's, it's, uh, it's, it's a battlefield. Um, yeah. And definitely, most of the college has gone the way of the world. Yeah, and uh, I think it's th- very interesting that the uh, the integral program and the philosophy program, which is pretty much intermingled faculty, um, have really stayed amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're still there. They're still fighting. They're still Catholic. Joe yeah. um,
1: Zapeta, one of uh, one of our alumni, there. there. I
0: just interviewed him on the mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah, um, so they're fighting the good fight. Yeah. Well, the likes of. Uh, MacArthur and every other TAC president, fought, you know, ran away. Rather well, than
1: they said they, they realized that if we want to do it fully and completely, we rasa. need to have our, yep. our own place. And so they did. They, and it was a crazy thing to do. Yep. Um, and you probably heard some of the the stories of the of the founding times and how difficult it was, and you know how they never they never really knew if they were going to get a paycheck the next week or not. Right. Um, but they, they persevered, and it's really flourishing now. Um, program of Liberal Studies at, at the University of Notre Dame <laughs> is another one that um, was a program devoted, a great books-oriented program within the larger university, but then it's it's all also had that difficulty. Um, Ron MacArthur and Mark Berquist and Jack Newmeyer and Peter DeLuke, another one, they they decided to form their own school and wholly dedicate the entire college to an integrated um, study, uh, an integrated study within the Catholic um, intellectual tradition.
0: Now, did they? This that's a pretty brave thing to do. Did they? They bootstrap it, or did they just get out there
1: and raise money? How did they? I think they start? got. Um, they yeah. They went. They got some support. From they got some support from people like um, Father John Hardin and um, hmm. some others. I, I don't know. I know they had a dinner, like an important dinner, up in San Francisco, and I'm pretty sure that Fulton Sheen was the was the uh, speaker there. How about that? Um, at any rate, they got enough money. I think I think one of the stories that they went to Henry Salvatore, maybe, huh. and. His his response was, "Well, everybody deserves a chance to fail." So <laughs> I think he gave them twenty five thousand or something like that. Wow! So they got enough to get going, which
0: wasn't that wasn't a little bit of money back in the day. No, would, you know. but it
1: wasn't a lot either. Sure. At least not a long yeah. term. I don't think they ever had a money to say that would that would make them comfortable in any way at all. Right. So it was a real big risk. Yep. yep. Failure was always around the corner. Financial failure was always around the corner. Mm-hmm. They always seemed to find. The donors, when they needed them, you know, kind of in desperation sometimes, but uh, um, but they 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 believe so strongly in the education and what they found, they were they said over and over again how um, how amazed they were at the students that they got. So they were hoping they would get just you know any students that would come and they would work with them. What they got was students who just became on fire hmm. for education in the truth, education in the truth for its own sake, and um, the, the the passion for it that they found among students. I think they, they had no idea that would be there. Yeah. And so that when they had that, I think that that made them more and more completely dedicated to seeing this through to the, you know, the what year was the college founded it was founded in 1971 i think 71. it um okay. officially incorporated in 69 but it opened its doors in 71 and the the most dramatic story about the college was that um, they were originally renting from a claritian monastery down in calabasas uh well, the Claritians decided to sell the place, and they wouldn't sell it to the college. At least the, they, the, the asking price was more than the college could afford. I think they sold it to some the Moonies. <laughs> um, so uh, they had the, the college had no place to be. They had gotten a grant of land up in the Los Padres National Forest north of uh, Santa Paula, California, but they didn't have any buildings on it. Mm-hmm. They were they were hoping to build there sometime. That's the current location. That's the current location. Wow. Yeah. It was pasture land. It was a it was um, it had been summer residence for people, but there were very few buildings. Mostly it was pasture land and oil land, <laughs> and um, they realized in nineteen seventy eight that they had to open their doors. That if they were going to open doors in nineteen seventy eight, it was going to be there. Yeah. So they um, they they managed to get some modular buildings set up they brought in a like a hot dog cart <laughs> for to, to feed the students yeah. they had um they were not able to open until almost halloween and so i think they kept sending letters to the students saying yes we're going to open yes we're going to open don't abandon
0: <laughs> where were they living the students
1: uh they were at home over the summer yeah, yeah. When they came back, they were in the they were in the modular trailers they though. Trailers. Actually, I think some of the women, at least, had to had to stay in the in what we call the hacienda, the that summer residence that was built in the 1920s or something, wow. until they could finish the modular buildings for the for them.
0: So let me ask you: so the TAC is coming up on 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. When St. Mary's College of California was founded over, you know, 100, 100 and some years ago. I don't think any of its founders, Alamany or the Christian Brothers or anybody, would have imagined the, the road it, it would take you know, 50 years down the road. There's a great line in uh, the Batman movie where, where the villain says, victory has defeated you. And mm-hmm. there is this beautiful Catholic upstart energy uh, that's sort of natural for a place getting started with the, the best of ideals, but Is decadence uh, a problem or a foreseeable problem for TAC down the road? Um, What's going to stop TAC from going the way of
1: St. Mary's College? TAC, more than any, uh, any institution that I know of, has a very determinate understanding of what it's about. And Everything is um, institutionally put in place to make sure that the the faculty and administration and board all know what it's about. There's nothing vague about it. At least, um, at least nothing vague. Given given the, the central ideas, which are always going kind to of be big, but um, it's just very determined. And so. We keep hiring new faculty members and um, who are um, who are very much aware of and are, and are vetted for it's understanding and commitment to that mission. Um, and the board members, people who come on the board, they're all aware of what the mission is. So the at a college like so at a college like a startup college, yeah. There are often people who come with money, and they like, what's, they like what's being done, but they think, well, why don't you add this? We'll give you money if you add, add um, I don't know, for us, I add a fine arts program, we'll give you money for that. It's tempting. Um, right? Or, if you did this, then you would get more money. They have ways of, of making more money. Yeah. It's very tempting. And it's very tempting for a college that's on the verge of closing to say, okay, we'll do that even though that doesn't really seem to fit with, or else they say, well, that could fit, and they don't think it through very carefully. Yep. Thomas Aquinas College has always said, we would rather close our doors than start to do things which will um, benefit us financially but don't fit in with our vision of education. That
0: is so important.
1: And so the, there's just so many things in place to make sure that that commitment carries on that um, I think that kind of there are, there are other I think there are other difficulties which we face, but lack of commitment to the mission is not something that I can foresee in the future. Does the
0: stringency of your mission's articulation stifle any organic uh, development in the students or the curricula?
1: Ask that again.
0: The stringency of TAC's, uh, the articulation of your mission, yes, something like that, could be seen to stifle, you know, any organic movements of the college, or of the students, or of the curricula. Do you see that, or do you see that as a as a looming threat? Um, and why not, if you don't?
1: I think that uh, with the committed faculty that we have and the success that we've had we, um, we believe very strongly in our traditions and we think those traditions are strong and so we're very hesitant to change anything Yeah. yeah. so we are um, in that way I guess you say we're very cautious yeah. About organic developments. Interesting. And um, yeah, you know, one of our uh, founders expressed it as well. We we believe in glacial change. <laughs> That's a safe way to change things. <laughs>
2: um,
1: so I think that we are. Um, not. I've, it's always a danger with something like that that you can you can substitute tradition for real understanding, mm-hmm. and you embrace mm-hmm. things because they're tradition. Yep. Without and you're not them. without understanding them, and without um, understanding the a changing situation yep. to the extent things that things change. We try the best we can to think those things through carefully. We have, you know, we have a summer program. The f- most, um, a majority of the of the faculty or tutors get together in the summer for five weeks. We take courses together. And we also have um, meetings together about the practical matters dealing with the college. We try the best we can to think through things in in, in the new situation. But yeah. um, you know, I think it is a, it is a concern sometimes that the tradition can stifle na- needed organic development. But that's true of the church as well, right? <laughs> it,
0: it, oh, of course.
1: So. That's um, that's you know. So that's you go the, s- you go slowly. Hopefully, it's not
0: too slowly. Right. When I was at St. Mary's, I think one of the things that you know myself and many classmates were grateful for was this notion that
1: I didn't realize you were St. Mary's, grad. I was. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you were in the integrated humanities program.
0: I was philosophy, but yeah. it's okay. a lot of cross pollination. Mm-hmm. Um, but one one of the things that I came to be very grateful for was that uh, the best grapes grow in the rockiest soil. And so it was actually, you know, with really, really beautiful and Catholic uh, faculty, curriculum ethos in the, in the integral program in the philosophy department at Saint Mary's College. In the midst of all of this chaos and destruction, turned out to be great intellectual target practice. Yeah, yeah. Uh And and really, we had to we had to fight. We had to understand what was at stake. We had to understand the arguments. It was anything but a Catholic bubble, which I think was great for a personality like mine. Right.
1: And, and that's not for everybody, right. right? But that's, we were talking about how, um, I think we started talking about this um, maybe before the podcast, but about how, um, um, uh, I think that Thomas Aquinas College offers the most complete, thorough, thoroughly thought through Experience of Catholic liberal education that you'll find anywhere.
0: How do you avoid becoming Catholic bubble?
1: But okay, uh, there are reasons. There there are strengths that other institutions have that we don't have. Yep. And um, and that we don't just usually we don't have them because we don't want them. <laughs> right. So um, there there are a lot of reasons why. And I'm so glad that there are so many other institutions that are available for, stu- for young people. One of them would be to be in the midst of a vibrant, eclectic situation where your ideas are challenged all the time. Yeah. And where you can take what... You, you've, been, you've been reading Plato. Well, now you get to go talk to the people in the drama department or something. That's right. <laughs> uh, uh, stu- friends of yours that might be doing drama or engineering right. or something. And let, yeah. well, let me try to convince you of this. And that is... Um, or you read the Lysistrata Estrada and then go talk to the Women's Studies department. <laughs> Did you do that? <laughs> I can
0: tell you a Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that's
1: uh, that's really interesting. So the um, I think that uh, it's a great thing that that's available uh, for people, and you and I think that it's it's harder in that situation to get a like completely ordered education. Right. But on the other hand, right. you have a much you're, you're much more um, vibrantly interacting with, the, with ideas that challenge your principles, and yes. so you really think them through a lot more. Our college does, we, we like to get people who um, are not in the Catholic bubble. We like to get people who are from public schools. We like to get people who are not even Catholic, as long as they're respectful and that's of our right. traditions. I think that I think that many of them thrive. Yeah, um, I think others might find it a little too stifling, mm-hmm. but we want them precisely because we think that our students need to be our our students need to be challenged more. In the early days, when I, I'm a graduate from Thomas Aquinas College, so uh, I graduated in '87, and we had people. Uh, there there was no homeschooling then. There were no classical liberal arts schools then. Everybody was from the same, basically the same relativistic environment. Some had more Catholic families that remained strong in spite of the, the difficulty of the times. Most of us didn't. Pretty bad, pretty so, bad time
0: in the church, huh? Oh, bad time.
1: Yeah. yeah the, the 70s is, as far as I can tell, it's the worst time to have been raising a family in the history of the world apart from warfare. You know, <laughs> yeah. apart from having your homeland invaded. That was about the worst time to be and maybe a maybe even worse
0: than having your homeland invaded. It I might mean, be. Yeah,
1: I, I just. Yeah. I've never experienced that, sure, so I don't know. Sure. But uh, apart from that, it's just yep. insane what parents had to go through right then. So we had people from um, people who brought the world into the college, and then and then so there was a lot of clashing that went on then. Uh, now our students are mostly from. Um, Pretty intense Catholic families, pretty intense Catholic um, educational situations. Yep. And um, and I think it is a, a danger sometimes that we that they don't they just don't have the questions that would that would challenge them. Um, is that it doesn't come to them naturally? You accept
0: or is there? Or do you have um, ways in place to deal with this and counteract it to some extent?
1: I don't think there's any, there's nothing formal yeah. to counteract it. I think that the tutors. As uh, leaders of the discussion, you want to provoke it. You want to you you want to bring more challenging yep. things to the students uh, and into the conversation. Um, it's difficult.
0: The seminar method, as such, uh, you know, you, TSE does it probably as pure as anybody does. And that is, the text is the master in the room, right? And you you obviously you take TAC takes Aquinas and Aristotle as masters as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're, you're a tutor, you're not a lecturer. In other mm-hmm. words, you're there to guide, facilitate a conversation. But the text is, is the master
1: in the room. Is that fair to say? Mm. I think, no. Well, well, let's see. I mean, at least there's some nuance. I'll
0: edit that out and make a more intelligent question out of it. No, it's fine. I'm just. I keep- get, no, I get
1: the. Yeah, I get it. You <laughs> might have to edit the underrings out of it. <laughs> um, I think that, in some ways, probably you'd find a pure great books experience at St John's College. Okay. Yeah. Possibly at St Mary's. There's a really interesting. So, you, you you you're interested in this stuff. You want to read a little thing called Three Days of Dialogues on Liberal Arts. You'll have to ask me for it because I don't think it's in, <laughs> in print okay. anymore. But a friend of mine did a, um, put a PDF copy up. Uh, made a PDF copy. <clears throat> Three Days of Dialogues on Liberal Arts. And so this was in the 70s. It was late 70s, maybe 78. And it was hosted by St. John's College Annapolis And they brought together um, uh, leading figures from St. Mary's, Thomas Aquinas College, uh, the PLS program at Notre Dame. Of course, the St. John Colleges were there. me. there there were uh, a few other representatives. And they had three days where they talked about liberal arts education and great books education and how it fit. And in the second day you see, um, I think you see witness the Thomas Aquinas College difference. So the, um, uh, in that second day, uh, Mark Berkowitz starts to talk about this, what he thinks is the, he thought was one of the most fundamental differences between Thomas Aquinas College and the other programs, is that theology and philosophy are tutorials in our program. They are not in the seminar. We do theological and philosophical works in the seminar. But we have theology and philosophy tutorials. Now, in the, in the St. John's College um, curriculum, tutorials are where you learn sciences. Yep. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the liberal arts. The seminar is where you talk about ideas. Always with a text? Always with a text. Yep. Yeah. But um, in our program, theology and philosophy are considered sciences. These are not these are not works that you read, where you're getting a lot of exciting opinions. That's right. And you're trying to come to your own view of what's what's right and beautiful and good. They are sciences that start from principles and proceed in a demonstrative fashion. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So um, that's uh, sorry. So that that is a, a real root way in which we'd say Thomas Aquinas College is not of great books it's not a great books college at least we don't we don't define ourselves by the great books we define ourselves by the catholic intellectual tradition and the the so the the most important parts of the curriculum are the theology and the philosophy that follow um, a demonstrative method um, how is
0: that taught like how, how is your how is theology taught if not in seminar method at TAC, so this
1: is <laughs> this is interesting. Um, so seminar method, tell me what you mean by that. What do you mean by seminar method? Uh, a text,
0: a circular discussion of uh, undergrads pointing around in the dark, in limited number, and um, you know trying to make intelligent conversation which usually develops into something real beautiful i mean i don't want to dog on the seminar right, yeah. method I, yeah. I love it right um i think it has its deficiencies like mm-hmm. it's 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 um like philip in the ethiopian eunuch like i've got the book now i need somebody to break it open for me yeah and i think um you know if we could figure out the right balance between having like a master in the room with the text lecturing and then Breaking yeah. it out into discussion that might be the sweet spot, right? But seminar would be discussion of a text among peers uh, that include students and a and a faculty member there
1: who's guiding them. Mm-hmm. So the um, I think that at Thomas Aquinas College we would say that for for the most part um, it is true that the the author. The author is the focus of the discussion. We certainly begin all of our classes by asking questions. We hope that most of the development of the conversation, as much as possible, will come from the students. Um, we expect to guide the discussion into what we think are the most fruitful areas of of thought. But we wouldn't say that every author is a master.
0: Okay. We oh, would sure, say. Sure,
1: sure. We would say. Thomas Aquinas is a master. Yep. Aristotle is a master. S- to some extent, Plato is a master, but we don't think Hegel is a master. No, of course. We don't think Kant is a master. But or is he?
0: He's the master of the in the room.
1: He's the he's the central the central okay. thinker you're dealing with, yep. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that when I think that when we handle, we're pretty explicit that when we handle authors. Um, we hope we hope to help the students come to a proper judgment about them. Now,
0: how do you? So obviously, on first day of uh, you know phenomenology of spirit 101, you don't sit everybody down and say, okay, friends, Hegel's
1: the bad guy. No, 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 no. right. So yeah. how do you
0: deal with that? In Have fact,
1: to... we try, um, especially given the fact that our our students are inclined to. Go after a man like you. Well, right.
0: So, is um, is there a downside um, as far as just the objectivity of reading a text for a student walking into a room and knowing that Aquinas and Aristotle, these are the masters, and nobody else is. Or, or you know, uh, is does that have? I mean, there's obviously a great reason to do that. I think in that there, education.
1: Yeah, I think that there are some different dangers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's strengths. <laughs> One of them is. And I was just just doing this with Faust last night. So we were, um, I had my seminar with seniors on the first part of Gitte's Faust. And we were touching on some very big questions like what is reason? What is, uh, how is reason being presented in, in Faust? And what do we think reason is? And I thought to myself, I wouldn't ask some of these questions if I didn't know these students in the room were very deeply committed to their Catholic faith and that they had been they had been grounded in a view of realism and reason that I think is really healthy okay um, so um, but on the other hand I sorry ask the question again because they, they, they is there a
0: mystery. downside to having the pre-understanding that Aquinas and
1: Aristotle are yeah. masters. So the strength is that they have they're not just they're not just encountering Faust and ready to be uh, swept up by Goethe's amazing presentation of of the rejection of reason and the pursuit of passion. They're not they're not going to go there. That's a strength. It can also be a weakness in trying to because be. They're not going to go there, uh, but because they're not even going. It's going. They're not going to be un- sympathetic to it, right? Um, that and so they're they're going to be either afraid of it, which I think when I was a student, given that relativism and this stuff was very intimate to my life and you know kind of destroyed my family life, um, having found the saving truth. I wanted nothing to do with that, hmm. so I was much more inclined to attack a, a, some, a presentation like Faust. Sure, than, and I think others of that generation were. I think that, to some extent, this new generation, which has been, you know, the children and sometimes even grandchildren of our alumni, <laughs> um, they're more likely to not have any comprehension at all of why Faust would be compelling and attractive hmm. um, so I think it is one, I think that most of the tutors see that our one of our jobs is to help our students not just be dismissive of the moderns but to be able to see um, the power and strength of their argument Yeah. while at the same time not not being in danger of rejecting what we think are more uh, important um, groundings in realism, um, in the um, a belief in the in the power of reason, and in the, the core of the Catholic intellectual tradition.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting as you're saying this because uh, at St. Mary's that probably well definitely doesn't announce the master. You know, as Thomas or Aristotle, and really does, like you said, I
1: guess a more pure seminar method, for better or for worse. Where you, yeah, where every student, even in the conversation, is is going to take everybody's ideas, or right. every author's ideas, and think, well, maybe I want, maybe I do want to believe this. Well, and that's what maybe happens. this is true. It's really interesting,
0: because like at St. Mary's, uh, integral graduates, notoriously, like where, where, wherever they come in, however they come in, I think most of them will change, but. Seventy percent probably end up like pious Catholics, like tons of religious vocations. Thirty percent like proto nietzschean relativists, yeah, because yeah. you know, uh, they bite on the wrong hook. Yeah.
1: And I, it might be even more at a place that doesn't have a doesn't have a faith at all that it's that's like, right, like John's, like St. John's, like St. John's yeah.
0: yeah. Um, so that's so interesting because there is like there's the upside there's the downside I mean I think definitely you have to know how to at least engage the moderns given that that's that's the water we're all swimming in right now Mm -hmm. and if we just say okay you know Hegel is bad and bad is no no and Kant is bad and bad is no no then you know we're not really learning how to uh, engage or transform the culture that Hegel and Kant have generated right And I think that
1: at our college engaging the moderns means, uh, often at times it means seeing how a plausible, a very plausible error in the beginning can lead to the most... um, horrific conclusions if if it's if, if they are thought, if it's thought out consistently by a great mind who grasps it in all his power and reveals it to you so part of engaging with the moderns is is seeing that the error is plausible and the, then the, the thought that then reveals it in its i guess in its full sinister character yeah (laughs) but you don't you that you don't see it in the beginning um so descartes descartes passion for certainty his passion for certainty and and his grounding his certainty in self-awareness that's very plausible
0: not only is it plausible, but it's plausible in me, right? Yeah, exactly, in our exactly.
1: Um, but then you you see as you follow out his 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 exposition of that idea, and or that commitment, and then see how that's developed in the empiricist, and then ultimately in Kant. Um, you see what what that'll ultimately lead to, and it's like, no, we we <laughs> can't go that way. Yep. There must be something wrong in the beginning. So that's part of the engagement with the moderns. I think that another, engage, another aspect of the engagement in the moderns is saying, have they seen things more clearly or worked out more thoroughly than the tradition has? Things that are really true. Example? Um, well, the, uh, modern science. Yep. So and I think that this is, this is my understanding from Ron MacArthur. The founding president of the college, though I'm, I might be not getting it right, but um, <clears throat> the the I think I'm pretty sure he said that the two central courses in our curriculum are Aristotle's natural philosophy, which and and his uh, treatise on the soul, which we engage the students engage in in sophomore year, and Newton's Principia, so interesting connection Ron MacArthur who was a um, he was a G.I. Bill philosopher <laughs> yeah <laughs> who then went on to Laval for uh, uh, to get a, a degree in um, Thomistic Philosophy he first read Newton as a tutor in the St. Mary's Integrated Humanities Program or Integral Program they call it Integral, integral. integral Program yeah. Kansas' is Integrated Humanities yeah. Program the Integral Program at University of Saint, uh, the St. Mary's College and He was a tutor and led students through Newton while he was learning it himself. He became convinced that if we were going to save Catholic theology, students had to engage with Newton.
0: Oh, that's awesome.
1: Because Newton is the prime example of the power of modern science. Yep. And. Newton seems to have overthrown Aristotle's natural philosophy. But St. Thomas draws on Aristotle's natural philosophy all the time. Right. And so, if Aristotle's natural philosophy is out the window, then St. Thomas's theology can't stand. And so, we need our students to be, um, to be grounded in Aristotle's natural philosophy and to engage with Newton's principia as he wrote it yep. and as he argued it so that we can not just see what might be philosophical errors in Newton, but also see the power of his opening up of nature to us in a way that Aristotle hadn't conceived before. Right. Which then leaves us with the challenge of, of uniting them and bringing them into the service of Catholic theology.
0: Amen. And it's, it's interesting that even with, uh, well, Newton and and his uh, successors, uh, and this is obviously out of my field, but quantum mechanics, you know, it gets around Newton, but quantum, quantum physics is almost coming right back to St. Thomas now in a lot of ways. Like, what's well, a molecule? It's made up of atoms. What's an atom made up of neutrons and protons and electrons? The
1: central idea, I think the... Um, yes please I'll take it, take it I think that the central idea for um, Aristotle's philosophy I don't know if everybody would agree with this but that his idea of potency yeah, right. is, is central he believed that he, he, he revealed to us that being in potency is being right, and that um, that that's the, that's the key to understanding the natural world um, what was the last thing you said? No, I was forgotten. Well, I was saying uh, I'm almost finished with my the, first beer. So this quantum is physics
0: <laughs> is saying things that sound <laughs> Yeah.
1: Strange, so that that was
0: like an I, energy, What is it? A, even a, what's a an atom's made of a quark, and a quark made out of energy and intelligence. So well, it sounds a lot like I Aristotle and Saint here, Thomas. Yes.
1: But I was thinking that um, uh, it, there's also things in quantum mechanics that make it seem like they're dealing with being and potency, rather than rather than determinant being, which is the. That's right. The I think a, a central error of atomic thinking is that the atoms are the real thing. Right. The atoms are the actual. Right. Everything else is a congreg- is a is a collection of atoms. But right. The atoms so are the it's a, real. The Lucretian swirl. And yeah, and and um, I think that quantum mechanics, to some extent, may be forcing us to re-recognize in some way that no, the fundamental material reality. Is being in potency not fully actualized, and the actualization is something distinct, right? Yeah,
0: and that and that, and that being uh, is most actual in immaterial ways, right? In yeah. in spirit and intelligence, mm-hmm. and quantum physics seems to be bumping into that. What yeah. little I've
1: and one of the cool things. So, one of the cool things about being a TAC tutor, which I don't know that anybody else anywhere gets to do this sort of thing, but I am. My uh, my degree is in uh, medieval theology.
0: You were at PIMS, Fo- is that right? Yeah. Focus. Uh, Hilkin, Charles Hilken? No. Okay, he's a oh. Christ- he's a Christian brother now. Oh, okay, historian.
1: We might have overlapped a little bit.
0: Yeah, I th- yeah. you're about the same age. Yeah. Um,
1: but the uh, so I come to Thomas Aquinas College, and we believe that for the students to receive an integrated education. The, te- the teachers have to be integrated <laughs> yeah. you are going to thank you. you are going to get um, you're going to get a really poor integrated education if your teachers don't are not able to help you to integrate that knowledge so if your teachers have if your theology teacher doesn't understand linguistic theory or do, has no idea of Einstein's relativity he can't help you to integrate that stuff. Yep. At least he can do it only very, very, um, very poorly. So to be a tutor at Thomas Aquinas College, you have to show the desire, just like the students, you have to show the desire and the capability of entering into every aspect of the program. So, That's why in, you
0: hire so many of your own.
1: Unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's tr- we. they didn't want to do it. Yeah. Um, no. Or at least they didn't want to do it until after we'd had a little more... Outside seasoning than we we yeah. did, yeah. but the growth of the college demanded that they find people who are who are willing and capable of doing a fully integrated program, and most of the people they found were their own alumni. Yeah, um, that's not exclusive, but it's it's sure. it's a majority. Um, Can
0: you have you seen uh, faculty learn it after being hired? Like show sure. up with an openness openness oh, yeah. to it, and very much uh, so. integrate.
1: Oh, yeah. That's great. Yeah, and in fact, that's that's an excellent... They make excellent contributions. They're helpful, yeah. very helpful to us in in seeing things outside of what might be... In helping us to set, sort out what's peculiar to our institution's tradition from what's common to the Catholic intellectual tradition to what's what's commonly available as, as truth. Do you
0: find in your students... Uh, well, admiratio. Is there are they? Is there a wonder that permeates their studies, or is it? Yeah, we know things because we go to TAC. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, um, it, is, it has been said that TAC stands for that arrogant college. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that. <laughs> don't spread it around. I don't want, sure, yeah, You yeah. shouldn't tell anybody. Nobody that. will hear this. <laughs> um, and there's some. Uh, there are different reasons why that why that impression can be given. One is that we've certainly we've certainly bred our sh- our share of arrogant students. Um, mm-hmm. Another is that we get used to a kind of intense sort of open debate that that makes it seem like we're arrogant with others when we're really just sharing our mind. Um, yes. Uh, but we're s- kind of strong-minded because you're always facing challenges and other people aren't used to that. Um, but. Um, so remind I think, me, I think the, remind re- me your question uh I think that that's always a danger I think that as an institution we're aware of that danger and so we work we work hard to try to counteract that and to really breed humility intellectual humility that's what ought to come from, from these kinds of conversations that we have to breed intellectual humility um, I think it varies from student to student I mean and we certainly have a, we have a you know a varied motivation and a, uh, varied um, aptitudes desires that the students have you're going to find a gamut but I think we have an extraordinarily high percentage of students who are driven by an authentic passion for learning everything they can and especially for learning the highest truths and it's very interesting at Faust seminar. Um, there's a place where Mephistopheles is, is posing as, as Faust and talking to a student about what he's going to get at the university. And he says, well, you can study theology. And if you study theology, it's scholastic theology, uh, you'll get words. And you should take down every word. Find yourself a master. Take down all his words. Be able to, re- uh, be able to spit them out. Um, make sure that you understand the systems of words and how all the words work together and then you'll do great. And the student says, well, aren't there ideas behind the words? And he says, well, sure there are but you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that we have an extraordinarily high number of students who would say, yeah that's a, that we would never want to just be mouthing words and we would never want to just be impressing our teachers by the words that we put out on a, on a piece of paper in the exam. We are only doing this because we want truth and goodness and beauty.
0: That's evident. Let's uh, last question before I uh, we get into uh, what we really came here to talk about. But oh <laughs> well, so it's being a two-part episode. We've
1: okay, got, this is you know, starting the second beer now. Right? Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> These are very good beers. They are delicious.
0: <laughs> yes, uh, I, I've tried tooth and nail because I understand the value of a liberal arts education, great books education, and I've tried to persuade many, many students to, to do this, but it's so difficult to persuade them and their families, particularly uh, from the outside. It's so hard to describe the treasury that's at a place like TAC until they begin to experience it, until they jump in or listen in on a conversation, That's why we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you... Uh, How do you recommend or get somebody excited about this sort of education without them having first experienced it? Is it even possible?
1: (laughs) Well, we found both in fundraising and in recruiting, nothing can replace getting them on campus so that they can see it or even participate in it. So we do everything we can to get potential donors to come and see the classes. We, get everything we, uh, we do everything we can to get students to come to our summer high school program. Or at least to come to campus to visit. But especially the summer high school program where they're actually doing it themselves. We find that when students do that, they'll go back home and often will tell their parents... Uh, no, this is the place I have to go to. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, they got to come and see it. They got to come and see it. So I think that it's very difficult for a student who's been educated in the normal way of things to imagine the liveliness and excitement and joy and pain that can come from really. Um, reading the greatest minds that have been, having them open your mind to the fullness of the world, and then working with your fellow students to grasp that to the extent that you can. It's, it's very hard to do that. Tough um, sell. It, it's something that, I mean, I think that um, it is a tough sell, I think for people who 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 just don't sleep, I think in the way that education is done, you know, you K know, twelve education is done today. There are some students who thrive in it. Yep. They they like the fact that what they're being, what they have to do is just memorize a bunch of stuff and get it out on the test and pass those. They'll get as high marks on those tests as they can. There's some students. Um, For whom that's difficult, but they don't, they don't, they kind of feel bad about themselves, Hmm. that they're not doing it as well as others are, and there, there are some for whom it's like, why would I? I, They, they just blow it off. They, they rebel. They either rebel. They rebel against it either quietly or, or in a loud way. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that's all they know about education, and to realize that um, education is meant to. Um, meant to arouse and direct their highest human capacities in uh, in engagement with the most difficult and exciting things. That's just not yeah. They don't they don't they can't imagine it. So you can't convince them unless they're to see it. I think that the the people who uh, the students for whom it's most um, where the cell is is possible are ones who they really like reading they like reading they like reading things that are not in their curriculum yeah yeah. (laughs) Um, they like reading histories they like reading even fantasy you know good fantasy stuff Um, some of them like they like real science they like like the wonder of science and then them you can say yes we, we give you hope that what you find is unusual for you, and kind of makes you weird.
0: You're, you're normal. At you're TAC. normal
1: at Tac. The weird <laughs> is normal at Tac. You have a home. Have
0: you had any success with? Um,
1: <laughs> that, by the way, is my experience. You're normal at Tac. When I came at when I came to Tac, it was um, the I'm uh, within home. three days. Yeah, exactly. Within <laughs> three days, I felt like I was home in a way I'd never remember. Were you a nerd? I guess. I mean, I suppose. I was quiet. Do you have non-nerds at
0: TAC right now?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, we definitely have non-nerds at TAC. You can see them on all our glossy photos.
0: <laughs> <laughs> have you ever tried the? Because um, I've I've been experimenting with this sales pitch for this sort of education, and that is the actual the practical benefits is, uh, you know, because you get the objection immediately, right? Yeah. Well, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? Right. And I've just started saying, well, uh, whatever you want. Really, it's, it's universally applicable. When, when you know how to think, you're going to know how to get hired. When you know mm-hmm. how to think,
1: making money is, is really easy to do. Yeah. Especially if you realize, in our time, careers change so much. Right. That everything changes all the time. Yeah, To succeed in an ever-changing environment... You need
0: to be a generalist.
1: You need to be a learner. Yep. You need to be somebody who can come into any new situation... And, say, and identify quickly, what do I need to know, and how am I going to learn it? That's right. And, and that you can go and do that. So my brother never took any computer degree. He just was a Thomas Aquinas College graduate. He is now working in the highest, kind of highest technical levels of Amazon Web Services. Wow. And I tell you, he did it because he knew how to learn on his own. That's Nobody it. said, I'm going to teach you this stuff. He said, oh, I have to learn Oracle. Okay. How do I do that? And not only that, not only did he learn it, but then he did a website that taught other people how to learn it quickly, and then he made a lot of fun. Wow! <laughs> and he's just done that at every single level as he's gone up. Is what's the next thing I have to learn? Um, he, from Thomas Aquinas College, he was given uh, the, just the habituation in learning all kinds of new things. Do you all think the time. great
0: books colleges need to adopt that line of? Sales. I mean, for lack of a better word, right? Because that's what the secular colleges are doing. That's what Harvard's doing. That's what everybody's doing. You know, come here because you're going to get a great job and make money. And the joke is you're not. You're you're not going to be employable. You're going to be saddled with debt. Uh, You're going to be pigeonholed. But places like TAC can actually do what the secular colleges are, you know, Mm -hmm. loading their coffers, claiming to do. Yeah. Is it a betrayal of the sort of education that, w- that you're offering that is an end in itself? Is it a betrayal of that sort of education to, um, you know, proclaim its tactical and practical
1: <laughs> benefits? Um, I think that that would be bad for our kind of institution to make that uh, prominent. So I it's think it's important it's for it to be the dirty
0: secret that well, you're actually I think be it's, able to make a ton of money. Yeah.
1: I think it's important for us to alleviate concerns by making that a secondary a secondary kind of thing. So we you know, um, I don't even know if they're up there now, but if you go to our admissions uh, the admissions wing of our administration building for quite a while they had just placards up showing the variety of careers that Our students our graduates have gone on to and been successful in so I think it's important that for parents especially that they see um, that their their child is not going to come to our college and be given uh, be given an education that's worthwhile for its own sake and then not be able to support a family when they leave but that shouldn't be the primary thing because we would be attracting then people for the wrong reason and if you're, if you're attracting them for the wrong reason... Now, sometimes they might come and they'll, they'll say, I came here to get a job because I wanted to get a, get advanced in the world. And then I fell in love with what I was doing, and then I forgot about being a lawyer. You know, that, that can happen. But I think overall for the institution it would be bad because you, you'd end up with a, a critical mass of people who weren't there for the, for the learning for its own sake. But I think for a more evangelically-minded yeah. program that... That could be a good thing because you're thinking, oh, we're going to attract people who think this is going to be something that's going to further their career and we're going to seduce them. Well, yeah. <laughs> seduce them with the truth. I mean, you, well, yeah, you're, you're conveying it in the mode of the
0: receiver, right? right and right, to somebody yeah. you can't sell on the beauty of the contemplative you know, wisdom of uh, you know, the great books education, you can, you can definitely yeah. attract them. Make it more palatable. Yeah, Just I say, see. Hey, you guys can do whatever you want for this kind of education." You can, yeah. and what—that's what,
1: that's what it is to be a liberal education, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, and I think that it's another aspect of that is—I'll tell you a story. Yeah. So, you like stories? Love them. <laughs> so um, I met at a party this older fellow, and since I'm a grandfather, this is quite a bit older guy. <laughs> um, and uh, I found out that he had—he was—he um, was a vice president in some kind of large corporation here in Southern California, and he'd gone to Boston College in the fifties, and he'd gotten the Jesuit, the serious Jesuit education back then. So I asked him, you know, what? How did that help you in in your in the bus- in your business life? And he said, Well, I found out very early on <laughs> that when I went into a meeting with a dozen people there were a dozen different ideas none of them could understand one another i knew the questions to ask to understand everyone
0: that's it
1: and that's managed that's why there's no conversation liberal, you can't have there's no conversation you can't have there's no person you can't understand and that is that's what managers are made of that is what leaders are made of is those who understand and can know the questions to ask and have the imagination to understand people who are very different from themselves and very different from one another. And if you read if you read Tolstoy, if you read Shakespeare, then you will be that person.
0: Yeah. And even the seminar method itself is very helpful to this, because you have to, re- you have to be able to be Absolutely. actualized. By people right next to you, who who might or might not be making any sense at the moment, but you got to give them the best read, yep. draw the right distinctions to figure out what they're actually saying.
1: And you, you even have to realize, oh, I probably don't understand what you're saying. Could I could I ask you a question? That's
2: right. And you're gonna <laughs> instead, have, of, you're instead of instead uh,
1: of launching out to attack you, yep. uh, or completely ignoring you, I have to ask some questions so I make sure I understand what you were saying in the first place. That's, that's an invaluable skill. And that's one that it takes two years of daily discussion classes to really develop that. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. The, the freshmen, uh, with freshmen often, it'll happen, especially in the beginning of the year, that I'll ask a question. Someone will give an answer. Someone will give another answer. Someone will give a third answer. And so then I'll say, well, did you all say the same thing or not? And they'll say, oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't really paying attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's night and day yep. for a tutor leading a discussion with freshmen, especially early on, and then leading a discussion with juniors. You ask a question of juniors
0: they're listening and you
1: can not only are they listening but you can kind of sit back yep. and kind of be quiet for half an hour because they know how to work with a question they know how to talk with one another they know how to work with the text they know how to they, they know how to learn they know how to advance themselves in learning sufficiently to get really deeply into the the, um, the truth and the difficulties of a great author Yep, uh, on their own, you know. Yep. And then, usually, you know, half an hour, forty-five minutes. I mean, I, I'll probably say a few things, but then, then a half an hour, forty-five minutes into it, then I can start to say, okay, well, let's press this harder, let's go a little further, and um, and it's that's just that's just it a is. joy to see. That's so, so, there, so there
0: is a difference between an education and a training, and uh, but but in in many ways, it seems like. There is a sort of training that happens at a place like TAC that is a byproduct of the education. In other words, the goal is not the education, but but these students are being, they're receiving a great training on just dealing with people, learning to deal with questions, Mm -hmm. learning to parse arguments, and um, and learning this lost art of uh, respect
1: for Mm -hmm. people right next to them. Yeah, respect is a great. That's a that's a yeah. that's, That's a great. Thing to see, to see is happening. To, to
0: see in the in, in your interlocutor, <clears throat> no matter who it is, whether, it's, whether it's your worst enemy, you know, you know, a terrible person, rude person, whatever, or your brother, you're going to see in that person the capacity to actualize you as an agent by by just being there talking to you.
1: Yeah. Now the um, one of the one of my one of the older tutors, been around for a long time. Uh, told me early on in my career he said that charity makes this place it's he said we could not have the success we have if the students weren't grounded in charity I don't know how that how that compares with your own experience but um, definitely that that we are um, that all of our students. Are motivated by their by their life of life with Christ to treat their fellow students with respect is is huge for being able to have the kinds of conversations with have. They
0: see Christ in their fellow students.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, and that that can and get sometimes close. they see the cross yeah, in their yeah, fellow well, students. Exactly right, right. <laughs> that can be, it can sound fluffy to speak like this. Yeah, but. but it's a very real thing.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, see, uh, what did I just see? Uh, there's a sign, a billboard in Santa Paula that I passed today that was about c- um, civility. Pass it on. I don't really. I mean, I think that's a that's a cat poster <laughs> yep. in modern life. But that's that's absolutely true at our college that the students mm-hmm. in the classroom learn. Uh, a deep sense of civility and respect, which is a flowing out from their, from their, um, from their Catholic faith. What kind of a student
0: especially would thrive at, a, at Thomas Aquinas College particularly? Not, not the great books in general, but at Thomas Aquinas College particularly,
1: who should give it a special look? Um, <clears throat> what we look for in admissions are, is desire and ability. Desire to um, to embrace the full breadth of learning. So you have to have the desire to um, to learn from the scriptures and Saint Augustine, to learn from Aristotle and Plato, to learn from Ptolemy and Copernicus and Kepler and Newton, to learn from. Uh, Martin of Denmark, who was a medieval Latin, a medieval writer on Latin grammar, um, to uh, to read all the literature and history that we do, you have to want you have to want that breadth. And then the other thing we look for is ability: um, are you uh, are you capable of reading hard texts, getting through them, being able to have some beginning grasp of them? Not not a high level, but beginning grasp. The vocabulary isn't going to overwhelm you, and you can do math. So um, we look really hard at uh, math, uh, particularly standardized math scores. Though it's it's getting so much harder with the
0: on the admissions side. Is TAC more in the uh, recruitment or filtering end of things? In other words, I don't know what what is your acceptance rate. Can you Um, be turned down from TAC?
1: We have a rolling admissions policy. Okay. So it was founded on the idea that this education is for all. This is not just for uh, for elites. If you mean by elites, um, uh, the people with the best, educa- best high school education and the smartest people. Yep. We think it's for all human beings as long as they can do it and keep up. Um, so you're really going to go for that third beer, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> so um, the. Uh, so, what uh, we have a rolling admissions policy, which means that we take each application as it comes in, and we decide about that student on his own merits. Can he do this? Pro- can he or she do this program? Do they have the right desire for the program? If we say yes, they're in. Great. We don't. We don't rank them. We don't wait to make decisions until we can. Until we can pick the best and brightest. We think it's. Um, I guess not only is that our um, sort of Catholic impulse to serve all, but we think it's highly beneficial for all of the students that there's a range of quickness and ability in the classroom. We think that the smart, the fast students learn to be more careful and thorough from, from the students who take longer, and that the students who take longer often see questions and difficulties that the really fast people just want to blow over. Yeah. So we think it's, it's, it's really helpful to have a mix of ability. So in answer to your question, um, I, I, think, I think that we're pre- we've been pretty good about consistently, whether we're afraid we might not fill the class or whether we have a waiting list of 100 at taking each student and saying, can this person do the program? Do they have the right desire? And just judging on that, That's we, great. we've really and and that partly it's is so done because <laughs> partly it's because um, tutors. Uh, the admission committee is filled with tutors. Yeah, okay. So I, I don't know other other insti- how other institutions yeah, yeah, make right. those decisions, but right. our teachers in the classroom and you want students make the decisions to
0: graduate with as little debt as possible.
1: We're we have we are the best. Ba- we're like. Yeah. Number one or number two in the country at making sure that students are not encumbered with debt, not uh, encumbered with debt when they leave the place. I think that the the normal maximum for a student who needs financial aid from us is $18,000 when they graduate, wow. which is easily, as I know from my own kids, because tutors... Our faculty kids don't get any benefits. I
0: could have gone for that. That yeah. would have
1: been nice. Faculty students or kids are just treated like everybody else. Yeah, but
0: you guys pay so.
1: your faculty. Is this right? I, maybe I, mis, I
0: misunderstood, but you pay your faculty based on what they need, and you charge
1: your students based on what they can afford. We pay our faculty. We have actually... Um, a very uh, standardized, structured
0: okay.
1: um, pay scale that apl- applies, applies across the board. We're very democratic. But do they make more it money accri- if have more kids? Yes. So there is a child allowance. That's that, so awesome. Um, which has, um, in effect, it's, a, it's a basically a, um, a recognition, a, a, a way of supporting large families. Yeah. So, the, so as right. tutors, you don't have to worry about having more children financially. Because you're going to get a salary increase for each child. On the other end, as they graduate, you lose. <laughs> oh, you lose when they graduate. Yeah. So when my when my kids graduate from college, then well, make sure they down go goes my salary. School. They got to go to grad school.
0: <laughs> and then they got to get the yeah. fellowship and all yeah. that. Yeah.
1: But the uh, I think our financial aid is amazing. My uh, daughter works in the financial aid office. Um, that the the care that we take. With each family, to um, to try to understand their situation and give them what they need to make it possible for their student to come. This is astounding. I would not have been able to come yeah. myself yeah. if it hadn't been for I the just college's generous I a student today
0: here who is uh, not of means by by any no. means, but he you know he's going to have less than twenty thousand dollars yep. in total yep. debt,
1: and that's. Very, you can pay that stuff off if you you know within within a year if, that's you, a if you live payment. at home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's, um, and I think we're very committed to that. When I was a student, um, we weren't allowed to accept federal student loans because of uh, requirements that we wouldn't agree to. Right. And so that meant that as as uh, when I graduated, I had four thousand dollars in debt because the college wouldn't agree to it, but they made sure that there was money available for students to come yeah if they had the ability and the desire it's great that's a summer job right there so yep.
0: yeah and this we're going to get in it we're going to take a break here and get into this on the on the other side of it but um there's a huge bubble that's got to pop soon i think it's untenable to expect students to pay oh yeah. a quarter million dollars in debt oh, to get the same undergraduate "Quote unquote liberal arts education that everybody else and their brother has." Yeah. So, let's take a break and we'll talk about uh, what a liberal arts education is. Okay. Uh, liberal versus liberal. All let right. that goes.
2: Kind of, all right.
0: <laughs> okay. So we're back with the third beer with Dr. Andrew Seely. Such such a great conversation. We're we're splitting up the beers here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna. Uh, Throw you a softball now, Doctor Seely. What is liberalism? What is liberalism?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, easy question. Uh, okay, well, no, it's not an easy question at all. It's I know, I was just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you be more specific? Well, do What, you, what a... do you imagine when you hear the word liberalism?
0: Oh, what, no, what I, names I come can't, to mind? I can't. Uh, it's not that kind of podcast. We. <laughs> um, well, mm. I'll, I'll, I'll
1: phrase a question like this. It seems like liberal. That's a funny thing. I think liberalism or liberal, it just the meaning morphs depending upon what time, what time period you're talking about, and what is conservative at the time. Exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly right. So how do we make sense of this? Because we're here promoting um, a liberal education, which we mean, we t- we take to mean something that is freeing. I'm going to tell you a funny story, a funny story? Yes.
1: It's a sad story but oh. it's but it funny too it's a so I work with the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education yep. We work with Catholic K-12 schools trying to help them to rediscover their Catholic traditions and educate according to them So I was down at the, um, the NCEA the National, uh, National Conference of National Catholic Education Association at their annual meeting and I had a booth and I had this great banner which featured Our Lady uh, The Education of Our Lady by Her Mother St. Anne and then the title the name Institute for Catholic Liberal Education and I had people come up to the booth they looked a little uncertain and they came up and they said well we noticed that the word liberal is in your name. What 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 do you mean by that? They yeah. said, "Well, you know, liberal, you know, comes from free. The truth will set you free. Our Lord will set you free." And they went away sad. Yep. <laughs> it was not what they wanted to hear. Yep. That the truth shall set you free. And that's um I think I mean I don't know. I mean, we can go more into this, but at its spiritual core, liberalism is probably the rejection of that claim—a freedom. The from truth shall set you free. It's a freedom from that which will set you free. Liberalism would say, "No, we have to be free of the truth if we are ever to be truly free." Wow. Now that's a, a painting with a hugely broad brush, but that's pretty, and good. we could go into other a lot of subtleties, but that. Um, if you want to capture the uh, something of the aura or the essence of yeah. the liberal mentality, so then why would we want this term? Liberal? Yeah, we're li- we're, we're we're promoting
0: here liberal, liberal education. Education.
1: Um. Well, it's a it's a it's a an expression a phrase that's hollowed by antiquity and tradition. When is, um, the,
0: is there a recorded use of the term liberal education prior to the? 14th century?
1: That I don't know. Okay.
0: I don't know. It doesn't ring a bell I'm going to go look uh, up and I'm
1: going to go to Wikipedia and find out. So.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't ring a bell for me in any of the
1: ancients or. Well, the liberal arts, it was. Um, I think that uh, lib- the, the expression liberal arts is much older. Um, oh, there is? Yeah. Uh, I don't know when the first one the first I mean if reference anything I would is, say but that's maybe, that, from maybe
0: Aristotle's ethics would have something like that like the arts that can make a man
1: free but maybe not not in the ethics um, might be in the politics but I, I don't remember um, the first notion of it that I know of the came would be in um, in the Republic that's the first the first place where the quadrivium is presented as as the disciplines that will lead to philosophy, to the lead the philosopher up out of the cave um, but the uh, I think that it's, we really want to reclaim the word liberal in liberal education and um, so in our work with, in my work with the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education we have been we've been trying to uh, bring back to the Catholic educational world the idea of a Catholic liberal education and that that's what we should be trying to give all of our Catholic students Um, so why do we want to retain it because freedom is such a great good it's so central to the fulfillment of the human being. And it's so important to us as contemporary democratic people. Um, we love freedom. What is freedom? Almost as much as we love equality. What,
0: what is freedom?
1: Freedom? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I have a very uh, analogical word. So... Do you want its its noblest meaning or its basest meaning, or? <laughs> well, okay, so <laughs> what do you want?
0: Let's take it from a pers- from the perspective of Saint Thomas Aquinas and when he's when he's talking about the will, for instance. Because when moderns speak about will, we can't but speak about free will. As mm-hmm. if there's will and there's free and there's free mm-hmm. will and that's you know. Okay, free. so but freedom. Yeah, for for Aquinas, the the uh, uh, freedom, the li- Librium arbitrium, is is. That is not that big of a deal compared to, say, like the voluntas, the will. Like freedom is not. For modern humans, we think of like freedom is to be human, is to be free, and that's
1: that's what it's all about. I think that I think St. Thomas sees that that, <clears throat> that to have uh, a free choice is essential to the human being. And it, it's one of the distinguishing marks of the human being compared to compared to animals. In a sense of li- librum arbitrium, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that so it's it's a dignity property of the human being that flows from our ration, our reasonability, our our ability. So com- compared to animals, we, we are we are able to see options we're able to see that there are different things that we might do and then to pursue one among many animals are not animals respond instinctively to a good or an evil presented to them
2: mm-hmm.
1: they don't realize they never realize that there's some other way they could act they never there is no consideration yep so for a human being that we make free choice. That, um, there's, a, there's an expression from the Old Testament that God has left um, man in the hands of his own counsel, or something like that. Yeah. That St. Um, that Thomas will frequently refer to. So I think that freedom is, that the, the freedom of, of a human being has always been recognized as an important mark of our dignity, so not how- the highest mark. How did an important define, part. Or
0: how, how would you define freedom as St. Thomas sees it?
1: I think that uh, freedom is to be self-determining, which is maybe a scary way of putting it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, so in in our in Thomas Aquinas College's Blue Book, which is our founding document, when uh, when it comes to talking about liberal education, the They start from this is the, if it's liberal and at liberal education, it's the education proper to a free man. The free man is distinct from the slave. Everything the slave does is determined for him by somebody else. And nothing the slave does, as far as the master is concerned, is for the benefit of the slave. It's for the benefit of the master. The free man determines himself what he's going to do and he does it for his own sake and not for the sake of, not for the unchosen sake of somebody else. So freedom involves recognizing that you have options and that you are the one who gets to determine what you're going to do. Like have three beers.
0: How, how does that jive with the modern acceptance of that very statement but then taking it to the level of you have options to
1: change your mm-hmm. gender yeah so um, freedom is, is a great gift it's part of being made in the image and likeness of God but that you have freedom means that you can use your freedom well or you can use it ill you can use it to find fulfillment for yourself you can use it to find um, uh, to find um, good for others you can use it to destroy yourself you can use it to destroy others and um, how to use it so the, the, the important, I guess, the, the key thing about a um, a classical notion of freedom would be, we are free, we have options, but we are guided by higher principles to see what are the best options to choose, what kinds of options will end up destroying us.
0: Are those principles the, the, ta- teleological? In other words, yes, are we? Okay. absolutely.
1: So the um, and the on the other hand. The the modern version of liberalism is embraces freedom, but believes that to be free, you can have no guidance, you can have no determination, no direction, any direction is a limitation on your freedom. Whereas in a classical notion, you know your freedom needs to be directed. You know you need direction Rather, in order to use your freedom you, well. You
0: accept that it is directed. In other words, the, the telos is is there for you and, right. and that it's evident through and the, and your that, ultimate desire for happiness and then a natural a natural law, the natural order.
1: And that you... Um, uh, yeah, that, that you hold your own destiny in your hand. And you... Uh, so to... We, that, that's an that's an incredible power and a responsibility and you know it should lead you to great fear and trembling that you hold your own destiny in your so, hand so and mo- so you desire you beg you beg yep. for guidance in how to use this well the modern liberal
0: seeks freedom from ones and everything yeah F- from from, ends, one, yeah. from reality
1: well the, I think the I don't know, one of the most impressive expressions of it was uh, Justice Kennedy's um, dictum in the, did the Romer case that at the heart of, uh, at the heart of freedom, oh gosh, too many beers, but at the heart of freedom is, it, is, it, is, it right, is the, is the, is the, the right, the, right, the right to define, define the, your own meaning That's right. of right. existence. Right. To make for yourself your own meaning. That is as Nietzschean and modern as you ever will get. And it's in a Supreme Court decision by a Catholic Catholic that has um, completely undermined our society.
0: So, okay, so the next question then is, is is modern, this sort of modern liberalism, does it have its roots in what we would call classical liberalism, or is it something... Completely different. Um, uh, interesting. I, just, by classical <laughs> liberalism, I mean the the Lockean, Hobbesian project. I mean,
1: okay. The, for, so well, without the, making a judgment on yeah, that, yeah. See, those, So there's um, there's sort of a moral or social ideal that goes. They might be referring to liberalism. Then there's political convictions about how you can achieve the best society that also go by liberalism. I think we've been mostly talking about the social moral. Yeah. Well, um, so Locke and Hobbes are very different, I think. Sure. Um, but uh, Locke, I guess Locke,
0: well, hmm.
1: if there, let me go to the. Can I give you a,
0: yeah. Maybe I'll make a better question out of that. Okay. That if, if there's a commonality with Locke and Hobbes, I think it could be synthesized. Well, there's probably a few, but one would be: man is not naturally political. Man mm-hmm. is man is born into this state and then has to leave his natural state to form the polis. Mm-hmm. Whereas that's that's opposite of what Aristotle says that man is naturally and is political by nature. He's a political yeah. animal. Right. Okay, so in that sense of uh, Hobbes and Locke. Uh, this this sort of liberation from one's quote unquote nature to f- to form the polis uh, is that the same as or is that is that, does that have a confluence into modern liberalism? Um,
1: I think so. At least there's one. a common interpretation of those um, philosophers would be that all every individual is self-contained and has um, and has uh, all authority and right in himself when driven to become to form a society and establish a government then the powers of government come from the individual. So the, every individual is an autonomous. And governments can only have so much authority as any individual gives them. And, and sort of, yeah, that that um, which is, uh, yeah, it's definitely a different view than the classical view. Man is born, which born tends free to and be, everywhere
0: in chains. <laughs>
1: Which tends to be that... Um, that's, actually, that's Rousseau, right? Yeah, that's Rousseau. That's um, not the
0: classical view. No, the classical
1: view would be that, the, that in the political society, that's where we find our fulfillment. That's where we rightly belong. Right. And so the powers and rights of the political community are something determined by nature and not by um, granting from the autonomous individual. The latter being... The birth of classical liberalism, right? Um, I mean, yes. Well, I think or, that there's more modern liberalism. That's what yeah. I'm trying to figure out. Uh, let's, I let's I've written um, and thought a lot about the American founding. Yeah. So I'm a little bit touchy about these subjects. Well, this, uh, <laughs> that's why what, that's what I'm talking to you about it. So okay. So you you trust John Locke? Um, no, but I do think that Locke is different from Hobbes and that the founders, the founders tended to reject Hobbes as a demon, and they, uh, but they found Locke a friendly source, especially when brought together with Aristotle and Cicero and a good sense, a good common sense.
0: See, I think that's just because Locke is a little trickier about it.
1: Maybe so, but they, they, um, what, what they accepted of Locke fit with a Christian perspective in a way that Hobbes and which one? so give me
0: an example of something they accepted from Locke explicitly
1: um, that you would say fit with a Christian perspective that um, that governments derive their authority from the consent of the governed
0: is that in uh, Matthew Mark or Luke or
1: John (laughs) Um, let's see. I think that that is in um, yeah. It's in common sense. What it's in. It's in it's the. In,
0: opposite be true in Scripture, where where Christ affirms to Caesar that he's been given power from his Father, not the consent
1: of those in well, the Well I think that there's a difference. Well, sort of like marriage. In marriage, God does not marry you to somebody apart from your consent it can't happen this is true it can't happen that you are that you are married to somebody apart from your consent why you give that consent is another is another yeah. there's a lot of reasons why you might give the consent but without your consent you cannot be married your parents can't marry you your your uh, your society can't marry you only you can consent to that that does not mean that you make marriage an institution, and that you grant to your husband or your wife rights that only you have, and on, they only have the rights that you grant to them. You don't make marriage to be what it is, but without your consent, you can't be married.
0: Well, that's definitely and that's, true. And that's, I think that
1: that's, that's similar to the kind of thing that they saw in Locke. Well, to carry your analogy
0: further, though, um, my children are governed by me very much against their consent. Right. That's true. Yep. So I'm not so sure that consent of the governed has, has very much to do with legitimate
1: governmental authority. Um, definitely has its practical benefits. Yeah, this is, I, I think it's actually grounded um, in the Roman understanding, sort of the Senate and the people of Rome, uh, that they accept a leader or they accept a law. And that it, it was carried out in the in the it was it was carried through in the Middle Ages that that sense of the importance of consent for legitimate government.
0: So, do you do you think divine right of kings is a is a sort of counterfactual anachronism?
1: I think it's a modern. That's a modern. Yeah, it's a, it's a modern
0: <laughs> scarecrow.
1: Well, it's a modern. It's a modern attempt to. Um,
0: Oh, you think it's a modern invention? Like the, the
1: uh, at least, yeah. a Strong entrance. sense of modern okay, of, yeah. um, of the divine right of kings is uh, something that is 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 given to men. That was something that John Locke was arguing against. Yes. in terms of in the person of Robert Filmer. Um, I don't think that that was that, that sense of of uh, that political sense was important or prominent in the Middle Ages.
0: Yeah, that's probably true. Though,
1: though there was a consecration of the legitimate authority, um, it that that authority did not have. He did not have authority simply by God's appointment. And actually, I mean, you see this in Scripture. Now that I'm, you get I've, got, I've talked enough to give my time myself time to think about this. Um, David is anointed king by prophet. Yeah. but. David is also accepted as king if I remember rightly, first by the Jews and then by the Israelites there's a, there's a they actually say you are like you are flesh of our flesh and bones of our bones or something like that oh, yeah. so there has to be besides the, the God's determination that this is going to be king anointed by the prophets there has to be an acceptance of that on the part of the people this is interesting because with Christ... We've strayed far from you, liberal you,
0: education. Here. Oh, maybe not so far. <laughs> All right, okay. Uh, with, with Christ, you have the... Uh, he's welcomed into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and he's proclaimed as king. But then... The, uh, you want another water? Yeah. We can do that. Uh, like one of... Or, or have our servers around. There we okay. okay. Um, I'll just wait here, and then I'll kind of clip this out. Okay. In fact, let me make
1: another another So why? What this? I'm interested in why you're, why we're going this way.
0: Uh, yeah, we'll do. Um, he's gonna have another water.
1: I also have that. And we'll yeah, we'll have another round also.
0: The mango
1: I, part? What did I, no, I had a no, IPA. Yeah, and, had
0: yeah. hazy. hazy
1: IPA. Okay. What's yeah. your favorite beer on tap? I
0: want to change I it like a little the bit. Hazy. Okay, I'll try the hazy as well. Thank it's you. It's been very good. I yeah, really like it.
1: Awesome. Uh, what was your question? Why are we getting into such into political stuff? That's well, because
0: we're talking about liberalism. Okay. That's a political reality. Right. You don't want to do it? No, it's fine.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: And you're also a political scientist, so I well, figure Well, f- at least ta- I've thought
1: about it so Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so action uh, with, so, so with Christ, he's heralded as the king by the crowd on Palm Sunday, but then the same crowd says, "We have no King and Caesar but Caesar on Good Friday." so he wouldn't or it would seem he doesn't have that same consent of the govern that, that David has
1: ultimately.-hmm So they reject their king. Right. And that's it's 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 within the power of freedom to reject even God as king and yeah. to suffer the consequences. But wouldn't
0: wouldn't that be just mirrored with the mo- the modern political experiment itself that is they reject their king they revert um, to uh, governance based on the consent of the governed and so the king's got to lose his head um in France <laughs>
1: Oh, that's a that's a tricky one too. The, the French situation. Well, it seems
0: like the the modern political experiment is just a mirror of what's happening in the Praetorian. They're rejecting their king. For well, of the consent of the government. I they're, think that they're persuading Pilate. Yeah,
1: I think that in its more noble interpretation, that um, the modern democratic uh, regime is a fulfillment or offers the hope of a fulfillment of the equal dignity of man under God. And that's and that's Locke. That's not Hobbes, but it's Locke. And it's also scriptural. So the um, the idea that every individual is in his own being a child of God and and ordered to happiness by god and consequently has the capacity and the dignity to make choices for how he and his are going to achieve that happiness those last two things aren't in lock though what the achievement of happiness that he's ordered toward happiness um he does certainly have a, a strong sense of um, the community of all men under God. But for Locke, the community of all men is,
0: is this um, arbitrary thing. It's not a natural thing. There is no real community unless it's fabricated. It's an
1: artifact. Well, so I think it's really important to distinguish between... Um, Society and government. So, I I don't think it's in any way opposed to Locke. In a way that it might be opposed to Hobbes, to say that uh, man, no man, no man or woman is going to achieve fulfillment apart from interacting and in in interdependence upon other people. the 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 question for Locke is when does that turn into a government that has the power to execute you or execute others if you violate its decrees? Government, it's like uh, for Locke, since, since for Locke, the power to compel and the power to physically punish is so integral to the notion of government, Um, he, He, I think, has this view that why would we want government? We would never really want to yield to other people a power over our life, our very life, and our property, if we weren't compelled to do it. We would only do it because we realize we can't exist safely if we don't give that if we don't unite and give that power to somebody well,
0: and that's that's right out of Hobbes right we're just afraid of our stuff getting taken so we're gonna get together Though Hobbes says or, that
1: because of we're always at because there's um, there's a, a, a natural war of all men against one another um, that
2: uh,
1: that we're driven into society and, and we're driven to... Sorry. Because we're always at war with one another, we have a natural right to take anything that belongs to anybody else. Sure. For Locke, Locke thinks that... No, we're all equal individuals under the reign of God. We have no natural right to take what belongs to one another. Property is natural uh, for for Locke property is naturally acquired and there's a natural right under God to respect the property of others but i, I don't think you know, like Locke would say oh, some men aren't going to respect that and because some men won't respect that we all have to unite together in a society and give our united authority to a civil government that can render us safe. I don't think Locke thinks that that's um, that's even, it doesn't even have to be nearly the majority of people who won't respect the rights of property. If you just have two or three in 20, then you can no longer live safely. So like Hobbes has this thing where he says, well, we obviously all think we're at war with everybody because we lock our doors. Hmm. And I said, no, that's stupid. We lock our doors because there might be one person in this town of 20,000 people that yeah. will steal. Sure. And we all have to lock our doors. I could trust 19,000 out of 20,000 people not to not to come into my house and take what's mine.
0: Yeah. You know, you, so that's more of a Lockean view. I never, I never thought of this, but Hobbes almost could have made a better argument instead of door locking for clothes wearing. Like, like we... We cover ourselves. I mean, this goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden, but we do cover ourselves from everybody mm-hmm. so that we're not seen because we're vulnerable, right? So there is a sense that fallen man does, you know, like if
1: you spend enough time with me, you probably want me dead, you mm-hmm. know. But I think that in normal civil life, so my, my daughter has gotten this really cute little convertible, a Miata convertible. I think that in, if, if there were just, for most people, she could park that with the top down in downtown Santa Paula. Sure. And leave, you know, a valuable thing or two on the on the seat. And most people wouldn't take it. Yeah. But 10% of people would. Right. So therefore, we have to live in a way that's going to protect us all against the 10% of people.
0: So for Locke. So is- that and that's
1: much. That's a Lockean view. Whereas Hobbes would say, "Oh no, we all would do. it. We everybody." Would steal that if they could. Yeah, I just don't believe do that.
0: it. Which means he thought he would do it. No, yeah, he which, thought he would do it if yeah, he wasn't if he wasn't restrained. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. that Hobbes was terrified of death. Did, is you, that know, right? did you know, know that? that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was just terrified of dying. Anyway, I'm glad. Yeah, he lived to be pretty old, I think. <laughs> yeah, but he was. Anyway, um, so for Locke, the uh, the goal of government is not to cultivate virtue in citizenry, but to. Defend these natural rights. Is that so? Is that fair
1: to say? I think you have to distinguish between government and society. So men will will come together and work with other people for the goal for the for for um, to help with achieving the goals of goal of happiness. But. Why would you form a society that gives the power of the sword to a government? That you would only do for the sake of the protection of your liberties, which are the basis of your being able to achieve happiness. So, government... The protection of your liberties is the basis for being able to achieve happiness. That's what Locke would say. I think so. Not, mm-hmm. We'd have to have the books in front of us for me. Because you got to have make that good. Life, liberty, and property, right? Life, liberty, and property, but it's for the sake of achieving the good life mm-hmm. for yourself and those that belong to you. Um, Is that really what does it for us, though? What? life, life liberty, and property. It's uh, it, you can't do. It's a sine qua non. It's not sufficient. <laughs> right. <laughs> but a sine qua non. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Um, but then, then he does he does I think this is right that he does seem to think that that means that government isn't going to have the, the happiness of its people as its goal that, that I'll have to, i'd have to go back and look
0: no i don't think Locke yeah. would say that
1: but the founders did the founders thought that um, that the constitution, for example, well the, in the declaration it's we're um, sorry the men's institute governments in such a way as to procure their safety and happiness mm-hmm. and in the constitution the preamble uh, we are uniting and forming a more perfect union in order to achieve the blessings of liberty not to achieve liberty with the blessings isn't of liberty isn't
0: that something different from Locke and Hobbes Or maybe it's not. What do you think?
1: Say what? Say more.
0: The blessings of liberty versus the the construct of liberty,
1: which is what it is for Locke. I guess I'm not sure about Locke. You're probably right about Hobbes, but it's not that way for the founders. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. So you think
1: the the American experiment is salvageable? I mean, you think that it... I think that, yeah. So I, I think this pretty strongly. Yeah. That... Um, young people and Catholics, c- Catholics in a particular way, who try to go to the American founding and find in it the devil that's responsible for the, for the misery we're in today, they're misguided. Yeah. They're misguided. And that, and that really, America in its founding is an example, even for Catholic countries, in how to order a political society that properly respects liberty and properly respects the dignity of every individual. Is that, that, that now we have, it's been corrupted so that, um, so that we're living with that corrupted sense of freedom and, and its deadly consequences today. But that's not what you find in the American founding. And the American founding should be for us a source of renewal for our society, not, not the scapegoat that we blame for what we have today. Do you think that's because there's a sort of inbuilt
0: apophasis in the American founding when it comes to God? That is, it seems to be the first government in the history of governments that just says, yeah, we're not God. You do your God thing, and we're going to stay out <laughs> of the God thing, and we're not God. We're not going to pretend to be God. We're not even going to claim to get our authority from God. There, God is self-evident, and He's he's doing his thing with you, but I think that really depends
1: on how you read the Declaration of Independence and its importance for the American understanding. So in the Declaration of Independence, it's very clear that our rights come from the Creator God and that we have to be submissive to that God and to his law as expressed in the law of nature. We have to be submissive to that if we're going to achieve the goals that are proper for a free society. I agree. But if, if you reject the Declaration of Independence as being the expression of the American principles that are teaching us how, that teach us how to use the freedoms of the Constitution, then I think you might say what you said. Why are those things exclusive? The, the, the Declaration
0: affirms the, the self-evident, God-given rights, mm-hmm. uh, and and in doing so, opens up a sort of window between God and you know, n- not its subjects, but its citizenry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it stays out of it. Like it, th- that's the whole thing: is the the American government is is meant to limit itself against getting in the way of just that.
1: Um, I think that the American government has in principle and in practice always thought it important to recognize the sovereignty of an omnipotent and provident God oh, that's and that, beautifully said and wow. that that's the ground of our respect for the freedom of every individual. And that the in some ways the, the 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 contemporary version of liberalism, by rejecting that, is completely ruining the possibility of an America. And that's at the heart of liberalism, if you're thinking about liberalism in the contem- in a more contemporary sense, is the, uh, the we have to reject God in order to be free. She would say but if you do that, you reject what makes America possible. Sure. And we're going to find that we're finding that out, and we're going to find that out more as we go forward. If we don't return to the principles of the, of the American founding, she would say modern
0: liberalism is antithetical to the American founding.
1: If you say contemporary not liberalism, not an extension of, not a natural yeah. outgrowth so of modern modern or contemporary liberalism. <laughs> yes, because modern yeah. yeah, modern is very funny yeah. in it. It means the now, yeah. but modernists started yeah. back the in like 1600s. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah I, I take it back earlier. <laughs> yeah. Henry okay. of Ghent, maybe. But yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Anyway, sorry. So, 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 say which. So, so you would say that uh, contemporary contemporary liberalism. liberalism. Yeah. Is antithetical to the American founding, not a natural outgrowth of it.
1: Oh, I think so. No, okay. Is that the John Nothing. Courtney Murray approach, by the way? No, he's got the the opposite approach, huh? Well, I don't know John Courtney Murray very well, okay. so I'm not okay, going to okay, comment okay, okay. on okay. him. Right. Other than, other than connecting strike
0: him. John Courtney Murray for the
1: right. <laughs> we um, we might or might not hold these truths. So, give you a little little bit of history here. So, I grew up. Unpatriotic. Um, Were you a hippie? No, I was. I was the. I grew up in the '70s when the whole hippie movement had been so revealed as just uh, an excuse for getting high and, and getting lame
0: Oh, good for the '70s.
1: <laughs> so there was no attraction to hippieism at all because it was all it was all a lie. I knew no. that growing up. Um, but on the other hand, I grew up with Vietnam. You know, that when I was a kid, Vietnam was on television at dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I grew up with the, the, the rebellion against the American government. Um, so, And I saw a lot of the reasons for that. So I had no real patriotism, though I was kind of caught in the middle. Because I saw the hippies and I said, that's ridiculous. That's, that's horrible. That's 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 bankrupt. But then I had, on the other hand, there's the conservatism. But that seems to be um, all bound up in lies and and whatnot. So I don't really have anything. You know, what do you do? Um, But I... I, uh, So I became an uh, anti-disestablishmentarian. But that's that's, uh, another story. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so... But I became... And then when I went to Thomas Aquinas College as a student, there were a lot of challenges because the way the program is laid out, you go from Hobbes to Locke to the Americans and it just... That's all your background. Oh, yeah. You don't have in that course any of the... You don't read the Magna Carta. You don't read any of the um, sense of... Like the development of the sense of rights, of Roman rights Mm -hmm. that was carried over into the Justinian Code. You don't see the way that... um, that rights were crucial for uh, Gratian's um, development of the code of canon law. So you have no idea of that background. So all you see is Hobbes, he's evil, Locke sounds like Hobbes, and then you're at America. (laughs) (laughs) And you know that everything is terrible now, so it's a real temptation to just blame America on everything that's bad now. But you
0: think there was a salvageable turn with Locke? Okay, so
1: what happened to me was, in a particular way, was that I met Alan Keyes. Oh. Do you know Alan
0: Keyes? I I don't know if I should say this, but I know him personally. Yeah, I actually oh. produced
1: his uh, all of his YouTube videos. Mm. Wow, that's another thing. We have he, to talk about that. I wish I could make him the president with a wow. snap of the fingers. So there you go. So I did work to make him the president. <laughs> oh. 1995. Oh, wow. The, um, yeah. I got excited by one of my colleagues about Alan Keyes, the greatest orator of so our you know, times. You know Anne Briling, then? Yeah, of Shadow, course. Shadow, Shadow Ann yeah. Oh, yeah, Ann. Okay, yeah, yeah,
0: Okay, we have a She of always called
1: me Magistro. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm going gonna,
0: I'm gonna <laughs> to leave this all in. I'm not going to edit any of it out. All right. Or anyway. name drop it all. Okay. 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 Yes.
1: So anyway, Alan Keyes was the greatest education for me and why I should love America. He was... Uh, Alan was um, educated at Claremont. And then, Ron. No, sorry. He was educated. Is Harvard, I think, for undergraduate? But he was a roommate of Alan Bloom. Yeah. Then he went to Claremont for graduate school. And that man understood the American founding yes, in the, he did. In, yes, the he in grounded yep. in the in the classical tradition, in the Christian tradition, and he could bring that home to an audience to just anybody. Yep. And working for uh, his presidential campaign was the greatest education for me in what America really needs.
0: You were on 94, you said? Or I
1: think I joined in 95. And yeah. so the, for the 96 campaign and the 2000 campaign, and a colleague of mine and I um, were involved in founding a decla- the Declaration Foundation, which was his, uh, his uh, 501c3 effort. And then we wrote our curriculum in American government based, for me, upon things that I learned from my MPs, largely. Um, so sorry. Yeah, yeah. So you, that yeah, made me uh, completely embrace
0: Alan Keyes. Uh, a it.
1: declaration-based, Christian-grounded, but not um, not explicitly Christian, but Christian-grounded understanding of the American founding and and how we need to govern ourselves today. Now that, that's that's obviously controversial with people like Patrick Dean and others, I think. But um, and so. Maybe I would concede what I heard. Um, uh, gosh, the John Paul II Institute, oh. Institute. Sorry, uh, David. Gosh, with the beard, is just ringing a bell? Um, I can picture him and his son. I read his book, Catholicity of Reason. David. When you say David, I say Bentley Schindler. Hart, Schindler. That's not who there he you was, go. No, so okay. David Schindler. Um, that uh, I heard him give a talk oh, on this. He
0: wrote uh, "Recovery of Wonder."
1: Probably. Uh, Chanel, Catholicity maybe. of reason was Schindler Jr.
0: Maybe different Schindler. Anyway, no, okay. their father and son. Max, is, there father, a, is there a Max Schindler? Not that I, I don't. Okay. Know anyway, that might be. all right. Anyway, anyway so uh, might David. Not edit all this you
1: better out, you should edit that out. Um, David Schindler probably gave a talk probably. on America, and and I think he probably this is this might be the most uh, most true expression. America was founded in metaphysical ambiguity. And Mm. that allowed for the incredible tolerance of America. It allowed for the Christian strength of America. Um, But because it's metaphysically ambiguous, as we've gone forward, we've made choices that are... can be sanctioned under that metaphysically ambiguous cloud. Whereas the choices in the earlier history of our country interpreted it in a Christian light and so gave it strength. The choices in the 20th century were interpreted in a non-Christian light and are really undermining it and destroying it. And that might be the, the best okay, expression Okay, so of this it.
0: we're totally on the same page. And, I, and I'm learning to clarify terms because... And th- that's a much better way to put it. What you what you said as a metaphysical ambiguity. Yeah, I think I said as as like
1: a, you. Well, you said like it was a rejection.
0: A, well, so, well, I said. Yeah. A, 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 a Deistic yeah. apophasis, like and I think a, a, that that that's a, 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 that's too simplistic a de- for the American founding. That the government is not God. That's all I mean by that. It's like they're okay. g- they're going to deny that that they are that they're God, and you do with God as you. In please. fact, they
1: would say. I think it's true to say that uh, the government ought to see itself as a servant of the people. Right. Um, so to that extent, if you if you think though that that means that there's a we put aside we can put aside any notion of god and then we can govern ourselves successfully that's false and it's not true to the american founding the american founding absolutely saw that it needed 100%, 100% to be agree. to be um to em, to embrace a providential omnipotent god yes but
0: yeah. to, to give to give to caesar what is caesar and give to god what is god's implicit there is that you don't get your god through caesar and so I think the American yeah. experiment acknowledged that, maybe even for the first time, that you're going to yeah. get your God, just not through us. So well, don't confuse us.
1: Although there was, I, th- I think that there was a recognition that, that God had to be a providential, omnipotent God who embraced Judeo- Judeo-Christian morality. <laughs> That's definitely
0: what... Adams would say, right?
1: Absolutely, um, Adams. Yeah, yeah. and others. And others. I think Franklin would say that too. Yeah. I mean, not that Franklin necessarily believed. (laughs) I don't want to live that way, but I think that's crucial for our society to flourish, that that be the, the public God. Yeah. And that there be public recognition of God as sovereign. I think he would say that. Yeah, and that um, and border. that through the courts. So, and all of this undermining of that Judeo-Christian cent, um, grounding that was undermined through the courts. It was not sure. really. It was not undermined by public consensus. A lot was
0: undermined through the courts.
1: Except, except to the extent that we did not, we did not rein in the courts when they started to undermine it. How would that have happened? How would that have happened yeah, if yeah. for us? Um, With guns or uh, no? It's just that if you'd had, like Andrew Jackson, let them you know, enforce it. Let them enforce it. You know the uh, the Lincoln. <laughs> the court has made Lincoln decision. said you can make your decision about Dred Scott, let but that's not going to be a political it. rule for me. Yeah, i Lincoln even said I'll enforce it on Dred Scott, but you're going to have to you're going to have to do that for every single slave you want to do that to. Yeah, because if you don't do it, I'm not going to I'm not going to enforce it. I'm not going to enforce what you did to Dred Scott huh. to every other slave. Lincoln. Um, so Lincoln, Lincoln had a, a modified Jacksonian view <laughs> of it. And then others would say that, and I think rightly, that um, and Alan Keyes uh, actually when he when he's, uh, lectured at Thomas Aquinas College said that the three branches of government have a co-evil responsibility to maintain the Constitution. Yeah. And so for the president to say to the Supreme Court, or the Congress to say to the Supreme Court, your judgment about what's constitutional is a violation of the Constitution, is entirely within their rights and within their authority, and especially of the Congress. The Congress actually most embodies the will of the people. Right. And so for the, co- the Congress has the authority and the responsibility to tell the Supreme Court, no, you have overstepped your responsibilities, and we're going to continue... To insist that the president enforce these laws. Yep. That's and and they've abandoned it because they have they, because they have no courage. They don't have the backbone to stand up on moral issues. They don't want to be held accountable. Right. To their to their electorate on moral issues, and that is they're going to have to answer for that. That's the why
0: back. a guy like Alan Keyes can get up and say on day one of my presidency, I will executive order all abortions outlawed. Yep.
1: I don't know whether that's the wisest thing, but he certainly has I think he has a great case for saying he has the authority to do that
0: definitely got the ability yeah. if he were president
1: mm-hmm. well, so you think it's all salvageable what's uh, well what do you mean by salvageable well, i, I think th- I think that if we return if we were to return to the American founding that's a great hope for us well that's not happening because no, my time machine happens to be broken right now <laughs> it's in the shop <laughs> so, so do I think that i don't I don't think that I'm very skeptical about the secular aspects of America being able to return profitably to the American founding and actually salvage our republic. Well, you said there's a my met- only hope is through Christians. You
0: got a metaphysical ambiguity, and that's
1: why my only hope is that Catholics and Christians generally would end up would have a um, a wise understanding of the founding and bring us back. I don't I don't think that the secular world can do it. I think that there's the secular world is so messed up, so divorced from nature, so divorced from God, that it will never return. And that we're, um, I mean, if you just, seems to me if you look around at the, the societies that the secularists admire, the European societies, that even, I hate to say it, but Canada, uh, that you're going to see, you see more and more the limitations of freedom, the loss of freedom that happens. And that Christians are going to bear the brunt of that if you don't turn it around. Which is, I think
0: you're going to see the, uh, I mean, maybe the Second Amendment have to come into play there, right? If the, re- if the reach is too far. I mean, what's the, that's the last stop, right? Or either that or a constitutional convention. There's
1: I mean, no way a constitutional convention could do anything because we don't agree on what the fundamental human goods are. Right. Right. Um, So the second amendment, um, so I think it's really important if you're thinking along those lines that you realize rebellion can only be the act of the people. Rebellion can't be the act of individuals. So the people can rebel against its government was that the case in the war of northern aggression in the did you catch my southern yeah, draw? i, I sure know. did I, but oh you're not southern are you no no not at all it's yeah so this is another this is another problem <laughs> with catholics is that is that catholics looking for a scapegoat that's go after right. lincoln
0: that's right,
1: right. <laughs> lincoln is the greatest hero that america's ever had all right so that's not <laughs> ronald reagan <laughs> no not ronald reagan i'm just reagan. kidding okay yeah. Yeah. all right. um, The the greatest tragedy for America was that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. The the War of Northern Aggression, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, No, so the... The... So here's an interesting thing. People who are... You want to talk about this, really? Yes. Okay. People who defend... The Southern secession. Sometimes they will invoke Virginia's ratification of the Constitution. So, Virginia, in, rat- in ratifying the Constitution, reserved for itself the right to rebel. And so they'll say that, they'll equate that with the right of secession but if you go back and look at it Virginia was not claiming a right to secede when they were unhappy but Virginia was saying we are a people and we remain the people of Virginia and if the federal government becomes tyrannical we have as a people the right to rebel apart from the other people of the United States that is not a right to secession right it's a right to rebellion against tyranny against the tyrannical uh, usurpation by the established authority, but that means that you can 't secede unless you can prove to the world to the to the uh, to the nations of the world that you that the government that has been uh, established over you has become tyrannical. The southern states had no no grounds for saying that the northern government had become tyrannical. The southern states controlled, the democrats controlled the senate. They could stop anything that Lincoln wanted to do that was against the southern interests and they would have. Hmm. I have no idea what this has to do with what we started talking about. about. (laughs) But you hit a hot button. (laughs) Good.
0: So the salvageability of the term liberal. Uh, Maybe to bring it home here Okay Uh, Is it still helpful for us to call ourselves Liberal But just say We don't mean that Transgenderism is possible Or you know That we're environmentalists We just just mean we're classical liberal Isn't, Isn't that a little bit
1: too much explaining to do I think that it's It's a wonderful thing If we can say We are the true liberals we are the ones who really believe in freedom, and I mean, not only do you say that's because we know that only the truth will set you free. Only if you, only if you accept that you are guided by a higher truth, can you ever really live happily as a free being. Yeah. But. Okay, now I'm going to lose my train of thought because I am on my third beer. <laughs> I'm on my fourth. <laughs> Were t- you weren't supposed to say that <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry. I'm on um, my third uh, yeah. but I think that um, it's very winning to say that we we love freedom we really want you to be able to live as a free completely free human being as completely as a human being ought to be free you do you and That if you if you reject what we're offering you, you are embracing slavery and tyranny, and and you're living it right now. You cannot say on a col on a normal college campus that I don't know what you cannot on a normal college campus. You're not liberal. You're not. You cannot wear a red hat. Amen. Right, because yeah, if triggers, you were, because even if it's any, oh, yeah. you have offended X, Y, and Z. You That's better right. rip that off your head, otherwise we're going to drive you out of here. You cannot be on a college campus and say that um, that every unborn child has the right to live. Yep. You cannot say on a college campus that you that marriage is between one man and one woman. You have no freedom to say that or to hold that or defend it. You will be shouted. You will be shouted down. You will be subject to violence. in a you, safe space. And you think that that's you think that that's freedom?
0: Yeah, so that is, is not freedom. Yeah, okay.
1: Freedom so, happens on Thomas Aquinas College's campus amen. for all of our radical amen. Catholic convictions and upbringings. Freedom happens there. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> okay, so so uh, so
0: this is our so at the Albertus Magnus Institute. This is our, uh, our approach, and you tell me if you think it's, it's off base. But basically, we say this is the liberal arts. Look at the beauty of what's happening in a place like TAC, Wyoming Catholic, St. Mary's integral, you name it. This is the liberal arts, and here it is in all its glory, and there is an imposter calling itself by the same name, and we need to unite and overthrow that imposter, because that's on your brochure. It's bad news. That's on our <laughs> brochure. Yes, that's on our brochure. I love it. Well, yeah, that's okay. It. So, so I think we got to do that, right? Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I mean, so tell me, tactically, is that is that a tenable position? Absolutely. Um,
1: so, Seely, you in? I'm in. All right, totally in. Now, let, let, let me. There's, let me think about this. Um, I really got excited about something. There. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I know what I want to say. imposter calling itself by the same yeah. name. So Unite the clans. I think that there's Overflow. a way in which it's in which people who promote authentic liberal arts can promote it as sort of the arts of critical thinking. Ugh. The the um, I, hate,
0: I can't say they, that they, term. they
1: teach you how to think. You think for yourself. Wait, now, you know, let me just say, critical thinking, critical, critical
0: is... Opposed to admiratio, you can't be a critic and a wonderer at
1: the same time. You got to be looking up or looking down. Well, you should use your admiratio to criticize what's not.
0: What's, what's not, not? But what I think you're, you're right. Admiratio, I think that yes. I
1: think that critical thinking, even expressions like thinking for yourself, Yeesh. that kind of thing, is uh, has been co-opted by the Common Core and and other educational efforts like that. But. There's a way in which, so when I was a student, I loved the fact that at Thomas Aquinas College, they said, you're learning to think for yourself. And I felt it myself, but that's not really the most important part of it. I think one of the very most important parts of the liberal education is that it teaches you, it gives you the training to unlock the treasures of wisdom, goodness, and inspiration to be found in the works of the great authors. Hmm. I think that it's, it's been, intentionally or unintentionally, the systematic effect of contemporary education to make it impossible for young people to ever encounter Shakespeare in a way that's going to inspire them, to ever read the Bible in any way that's intelligible to them at all, to ever read Plato amen and they do everything they can to keep you away from those people and to make it so if you ever encounter them you'll never understand them that's right and liberal education in one of its most important aspects makes it so you can be a learner from those great and immense minds and that Will change your whole view of reality and open up possibilities to you never dreamed of.
0: And keep you from being reduced to
1: an object of use yep. of those who Absolutely. don't want you Absolutely. to be able it's, to think. Who don't. Now, I don't know if they intended it, but if they intended it, they could not have done it better. Well, they did. That's it. <laughs> Maybe they did. That's the whole modern yeah. project. Yeah. Knowledge is power
0: over you. Amen. Amen. Anything else you want to say? Dr. Andrew Seely, thank you right. for these three beers. It's been great. Four beers for you. Maybe. <laughs> Learn more, like lots more, at magnusinstitute.org. This has been a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated, Copyright 2020, All Rights Reserved.